You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 7, The Rise of Mussolini, Part 1, Fascism. This podcast is supported by listeners just like you, and for that support they are given special members-only benefits, like ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special monthly episodes over on Patreon. This week has seen the largest number of new supporters in the history of my time doing podcasting, and so I would like to thank Philip. Jackson, Dimitri, Russell, Patrick, Maxime, Craig, Jerry, Chris, Stephen, Carrie, Doug, Kevin, Alex W, Abanked Ok, Aaron, Alex M, Roy, and Malcolm for becoming members, and to Don for the donation. If you would like to join that list, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. During the period between 1917 and 1933, It's difficult to overstate the importance of political revolutions around Europe. Not all of those revolutions fit into the standard revolutionary template, with a group proclaiming their intention to overthrow the government, but many of them were truly revolutionary. It would begin in Russia in 1917, with the first Socialist Revolution of February, and then the Bolshevik Revolution of October. These revolutions in Russia would be followed by a brutal civil war, that would not end until the mid-1920s. The German Revolution of 1918 and early 1919 would see the influence of moderate socialist parties solidified in Germany, but more radical groups were suppressed. Germany would be just one of several nations of Central Europe that would see their previous governments replaced by new ones, led by socialists and social democrats. These changes in governments, with a massive shift to the left, when combined with the increase in power and influence of the political parties on the left in many other European nations, caused tremendous concern all throughout the continent. It would result in many of those nations seeing a tug-of-war throughout the interwar period, as socialists and communists on the left strove against conservatives and reactionaries on the right. At times, this tension would escalate into violence, and in a few nations, it would cause radical right-wing nationalist groups to come to power. Nowhere would this shift be more impactful than in Germany, and in our topic of these episodes, Italy. Benito Mussolini would be the first leader of a fascist group to gain control of a nation when he became the Prime Minister of Italy in 1922. He would do so at the head of a group with a, let's call it, complicated set of beliefs that would change over time. 
At the core of these beliefs was concern and anger at the growing power of socialism and communism within Italy. Mussolini's march on Rome, and then his actions to consolidate his power within Italy, would be seen as an inspiration by other right-wing groups throughout the world. His ability to control the radical left would be seen by many Western politicians, even those who would later be among the most outspoken anti-fascist leaders, as a tremendous accomplishment. While Mussolini would eventually become the one person in control of the Italian fascist state, he would begin as merely one of many fascist leaders within the country. In this episode, we will seek to answer the question of what precisely was the fascist ideology that drove the Italian fascists to gain support throughout Italy, and then in many other nations as well. It is a question that seems, upon first glance, to be easy to answer, but it will have many complications. We will then discuss the views of fascism held by its primary enemy, those political leaders in the socialist and communist parties throughout Europe, parties that from here on out are probably just referred to as the left. This will just be the first of a four-part series, as we discuss how Mussolini came to power, how he solidified that power, and then his actions after his position had been assured. Mussolini, like many leaders throughout the interwar years, had served during the First World War. He had fought on the Asanzo, and before the war he would best be described as a socialist. However, during the war and then after, he would become attracted to fascism and its principles. During these years, support for fascism would grow rapidly in Italy, which brings us to a very important question of what precisely was fascism. Before we try to answer that question, first let's discuss what early Italian fascists thought they were supporting, an answer which is incredibly varied. In the early days of fascism, they would try to lay claim to the idea that it was the natural outgrowth of the brotherhood experienced by soldiers who had fought during the war and in the trenches. They would claim that this spirit had brought Italy to victory, and it would help the nation reach new heights of power and prestige. It would also claim that Italy's victory had been taken from it in 1919 during the Paris Peace Conference when Italy was betrayed by her allies. These were incredibly broad concepts and did not specify an exact mission or course of action for fascism. This can be blamed on the fact that fascism, unlike its arch-nemesis socialism, was not based on an intellectual movement. There is not a fascist Marx or Engels who had evolved theoretical discussions and decisions long before they were put in place. Socialists and communists of this period of history constantly and consistently referred back to the foundational ideas of Marxism, dating back to the Communist Manifesto and before. There was nothing like that in fascism. And because there was not a single unifying vision for what fascism was or should be, fascist movements throughout Europe and the world would diverge in both their actions and their end goals. This caused the movement to be very fluid. Some governments would borrow features of fascist nations to assist in their own goals, such as mass mobilization and the projection of strength, without fully embracing fascism itself. All of this has presented a problem for historians, as they tried, as they have tried over the decades, to identify what fascism was, or is, and how it should be classified. Striving for a way to define and identify fascism has occupied a colossal amount of space in the study of the rise of Mussolini and other fascists. Almost every single book I've read on the topic, and most of the journal articles, have at least touched on the topic, if only to say that the quest for a proper definition seems to be never-ending. In honor of this tradition, we will have to discuss it here at the beginning of this episode. To quote historian Robert Paxton from his seminal work The Five Stages of Fascism, quote, At first sight, nothing seems easier to understand than fascism. 
It presents itself to us in crude, primary images of chauvinist demagogue haranguing a ecstatic crowd, disciplined ranks of marching youths, uniform-shirted militants beating up members of some demonized minority, obsessive preoccupation with community, decline, humiliation, and victimhood, and compensatory cults of unity, energy, purity, pursued with redemptive violence. Yet great difficulties arise as soon as you set out to define fascism. End quote. One of the largest problems is one of details. Mussolini himself would often explain what fascism was in only the broadest possible terms, speaking of a single party, a single nation, a single leader. But what that party or nation or leader should try to achieve was often left to amorphous ideas of power, prosperity, and control. There was not a specific plan or a specific roadmap, and even in cases in which a specific policy was pursued, that specific policy might be changed based on the situation. To quote R.J.B. Bosworth from Mussolini's Italy, Life Under the Fascist Dictatorship 1915-1945, quote, As Mussolini told Franco in October 1936, what the Spaniards should aim at was a regime that was simultaneously authoritarian, social, and popular. End quote. However, this ambiguity was seen by many as not a weakness but a strength, or as fascist Camillo Pazelli would say, above all else fascism is, and must always increasingly become a way of life. To cast it as dogma, however the word is understood, means to bind it with a chain that if it is not immediately sundered in the process of acting, can only end up shackling and perhaps killing off all future development." End quote. So while the exact specifics of what the definitional form of fascism is defined as can be difficult to determine, there are some key concepts at the root of all examples that we have of fascist movements. Core to the fascist idea was the belief that a unified, centralized, and authoritarian state was the best way to bring about change and to push the state forward towards a better future. To achieve this state, all members of the state must be fully devoted to that future, and those that were not should be dealt with in some way, including violence, if necessary. This violence interacts with a belief in social Darwinism, that only the strong should control the fate of the nation, to produce a movement that will quickly discard those groups that are seen as weak. Fascism was also seen as the path that rejected both capitalism and communism, and the concept that fascism represented a third way outside of the two dominant systems was core to early fascist movements. Another constant was violence unremitting violence. Fascism worshipped violence as a way to cleanse and purify the state, to remove those that would not support fascist ideas. In the early years, this violence was committed by paramilitary groups that would spring up in nations like Italy and Germany. These groups were often made up of war veterans, and they rejected the pacifism that was a growing feature of European politics after the war. They believed that instead their violence would lead to a better system. While these paramilitary groups could cause a negative reaction among large groups in society, they would be one of the core reasons that fascism would not just survive, but thrive. The actions of paramilitaries, as violent and destructive as they were, gave the movement a kind of dynamism and feeling of momentum that so many other political movements lacked. The paramilitary groups believed that they were on a righteous crusade, and such a belief structure was powerful and contagious. The willingness of the paramilitary groups to treat all opponents as worthy of violence, and then to ruthlessly pursue that violence against them, caused many people, even those outside of the core fascist groups, 
to believe that they could bring some sort of order to modern society. For example, if you were a person who also believed that communism was going to be the downfall of society, the fascists were the ones obviously dealing with that problem, not just theoretically or politically, but out in the streets. How they were doing this was at times unsettling, with all of the brutal and savage beatings of people and the mass killings of those who opposed them. But many would ignore those actions and focus instead on the results, which they saw as successful outcomes. And then in the later years, the violence would simply be ignored, until eventually the paramilitary groups were brought to heel after the fascists came to power. However, by that point, the paramilitary groups had performed their most important purpose, catapulting fascism onto the national stage. It was through their devotion to the idea and their willingness to do whatever was necessary that they would accomplish their task. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Of course, when it comes to violence, fascists needed a target. In our two largest case studies for what fascism looks like in action, Italy and Germany, the first great enemy of fascism was the socialists and the communists, or really any political group on the left. This had its roots in the two different ways in which the group saw society and its problems. From a communist viewpoint, the conflict was between the classes, with the workers needing to seize control. For fascists, class didn't really come into play or at least not in the way that Marx intended. Instead, fascists saw the productive and supportive classes ranged against their unproductive enemies. And how a group was classified as unproductive often had little to do with their specific economic output, and instead was based on a wide range of almost arbitrary factors. For example, racism, while intrinsic to later fascism in Germany, did not play a large role in the fascist rhetoric in Italy in the early 1920s. What was present in that rhetoric was an extreme intolerance for diversity, but it was not necessarily based on a condemnation of racial characteristics, but instead just a wider condemnation of diversity of any kind. Often these feelings would feed into pre-existing prejudices within a society, and they would be amplified. This was one of the reasons that prejudice and violence against Jews would be so catastrophic. It fed upon pre-existing anti-Semitism within the society. The support for anti-communist rhetoric followed this pattern as well. 
There were many groups around Europe in a variety of countries that were incredibly fearful of communism spreading into Western Europe. The fascist movement would tap into this fear and use it both to gain supporters, but also as an excuse for their violent actions. However, this is just one example of the driving need of fascism to find enemies. They saw violence as a cleansing action for society, a necessary step, and that required enemies, either internal or external, that could be the target of that violence. One final piece that is important to understand when it comes to fascism is that fascist movements are often ready and willing to change. When you compare some of the radical rhetoric of fascist movements early in their path to power, they often bear little resemblance to what they would actually do once they were in power. Early Italian fascism contained ideas of radical social change, changes that might easily be compared to those advocated for by socialists, but once Mussolini sought to take the final steps into power, these were all cast aside. In 1920, the program for the National Socialist Party in Germany was strongly anti-capitalist, a viewpoint that would be chipped away at over time, and by 1933, they would come to power with the help of those same capitalists. In each case, the ideological position came in a distant second in importance to gaining power. There are also examples of fascist movements compromising on their path to power. Robert Paxton would describe this process in his Five Stages of Fascism on how a fascist movement is created and then eventually takes control. He would summarize it into five steps like this. 1. Initial creation of movements. 2. Their rootings as parties in a political system. 3. The acquisition of power. 4. The exercise of power. and 5. Radicalization or entropy. Paxton posits that the first stage is very common. It's mostly the idea stage of a movement and can be participated in by only a few individuals. The second stage happens far less frequently, as it requires a fascist movement to become a legitimate political force within a nation. When this does occur, it often requires drastic changes to the political program, with at least some outward moderation and a downplaying of their anti-bourgeois and anti-capitalist viewpoints. Then at the third stage, the actual movement into power, the two best examples, and maybe the only two examples depending on your definitional choices, are Germany and Italy. After these two fascist parties came into power, then they had to reckon with their earlier ideas and supporters. In both cases, the parties made compromises to secure the support of the larger population and more traditional political groups. This often caused a dissonance with the more radical and hardcore supporters from the early stages of development, particularly members of those paramilitary groups that had made up most of the radical fascists. These supporters were critical to fascist leaders as they sought to gain power, but then they instantly became a liability as fascist leaders tried to solidify their power. How they were dealt with would change based on the nation, but they would have to be dealt with, which will be a topic for later episodes. Up to this point in the episode, we've mostly discussed the most ardent supporters of fascism, the leaders of the movement and then those members of the paramilitary groups that supported them with violence. However, the support base for fascism was much larger than just this fanatical core. This support came from a wide variety of places. For example, in Italy, one of the early support groups was the rural middle classes, the landowners, sharecroppers, and tenant farmers of northern Italy. These individuals were threatened by the growing activism of the socialist agricultural leagues, who were pushing for better conditions and pay for rural laborers. Strikes had already occurred in these regions, which caused the middle-class employers to turn to the fascists as a way to push back against the workers. This is just one example of the middle classes reaching out to fascists as a way to combat the growing influence of socialist movements all over Europe. 
Here's Adrian Littleton in Seizure of Power, Fascism in Italy, 1919-1929, with a good explanation as to why. Quote, To the petty bourgeoisie and even the professional classes, faced with the serious decline in living standards and with their social function denied by proletarian socialism, fascism offered not only psychological reassurance, but a means of overcoming the fatal defect of disorganization which rendered them helpless in the faces of the pressures from the forces of organized capitalism on one hand and the trade unions on the other." End quote. These connections between the fascists and the middle classes were very important. It provided them with money and connections at a time when both of these were incredibly important to the future development of the fascist movements. I will also say that it's important not to overstate the wide-ranging support for the fascists in the early years of their existence. During these years, while the mass support was nice when they could get it, they relied far more on the fanaticism of their followers than on the support of a large portion of society. One of the core beliefs of fascism was that the left was the enemy of the state, and that it had to be eradicated. For their part, those on the left also viewed fascism as a real threat. It seems only appropriate here in this episode to look at how the political leaders on the left viewed fascism during this period. When looking at these viewpoints, it's clear that for everybody outside of the fascist groups themselves, they were all grappling with the ever-evolving nature of fascism, and it was a challenge for them to properly define fascism and to try and determine a proper reaction to it. Or, as Gerhard Gotz would say in Austro-Marxist Interpretations of Fascism, quote, When other groups in Europe were reacting to fascism and its rise, they were dealing not with a completed phenomenon neatly encapsulated between two dates, but as a living movement that was in constant states of flux. Or, as communist Palmyro Togliatti would say, quote, Fascist ideology is nothing if not a chameleon, Look at a fascist ideology only in terms of the goal that fascism was aiming at, or aiming to achieve at that precise moment with that precise ideology. Even though the target was always shifting, there were many discussions and attempts to define the movement. At first, they would look at fascism from a classist perspective. In this view, they believed that fascists belonged to classes that were most directly threatened by a Marxist social revolution. The class most at threat by this revolution was the petite bourgeoisie, who were threatened not just by a social revolution, but also by the larger industrial capitalists. Or, as Julius Bronthal would say in 1922, fascism was, quote, the brutal expression of the property-owning class's desire for domination, counter-revolution in its modern form of militaristic violence. The capitalist class was seeking to upset the equilibrium of class forces, between, on the one hand, the economic hegemony of the bourgeoisie, and on the other, the political power of the proletariat. This connection between fascism and capitalism was solidified by the time of the Fifth World Congress of the Comintern in 1924. At the Congress, fascism was also connected to both just a poorly structured proletarian revolution and the contamination of communist movements by social democrats. The resolution from the Congress would say, quote, In its social structure, fascism is a petty bourgeois movement. It has its roots in the middle classes, doomed to decay as a result of the capitalist crisis. End quote. 
Deeply rooted in the left's definition of fascism was that it was created by and supported by capitalists, and especially those capitalists least secure within society. This viewpoint also explained why fascism had so much support among younger individuals, as they were less likely to have a secure position within society, especially in those areas most negatively affected by the First World War, where those entering adulthood had so many problems finding their way. The reason for these issues, according to many Marxists, was capitalism itself, and fascism was just an outgrowth of that issue. Or as Austrian Marxist Wilhelm Ellenbogen would claim, the success of fascism was linked to certain developmental tendencies in capitalist society. There was also some belief within Marxist leaders that fascism, without a central driving force, was destined to eventually self-destruct. One example of this line of thought came from the Austrian social democrat Otto Bauer. And in general, this viewpoint was due to a severe underestimation of the ability of fascists to change their positions, and to navigate the difficult waters between maintaining the support of their most radical followers and gaining the support of leading capitalists. While trying to determine a way to define and categorize fascism, those on the left and many others were dealing with the ever-evolving nature of fascism, but they were also dealing with a movement that had spread to many different nations. While the fascist movements in Italy and Germany will receive most of our attention, there were many other nations where fascist groups would be created and would enjoy at least some popular support. One example of this would be in France, where a fascist party would be created shortly after Hitler came to power in 1933. It was a movement based more on Italian fascism than Nazism, and they would receive monetary support from Italy. They would participate in the International Fascist Conference of 1934. This conference was attended by 13 different national fascist parties from around Europe, although there were many absences, like Germany and Britain. Representatives at the conference would disagree on many specific policies, but it's a good example of how widespread and pervasive the fascist movement was in Europe in the 1930s. Next week, we will begin a more detailed discussion of fascism in just one nation, Italy, and what that looked like and what that meant, what they believed, and what they hoped to achieve. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode for that discussion.